Bible will be teaching this morning from Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll be reading from verses 22 through the end of the chapter. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Heavenly Father, thank you for these great passages about relationships. I pray that we would each see in these scriptures how we are to be conformed more and more to Christ and what you think is important. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. For those of you who missed my comments last week at the congregational meeting, I changed my topic. I usually change my title, but I changed my topic as well. So if you're looking at Galatians chapter 2, there's a lot of good stuff there. But I'll be covering, I'll be covering a whole lot more scripture than that today. This is an interesting uh, time in, in our lives for Jeanette and myself. This June, we will have been 50 years in Dallas. 50 years ago, this June, we were in our car driving to Dallas without air conditioning. And uh, it was during the Six-Day War. And we wondered whether we ought to just stay home and wait for the rapture or come on down. Fortunately, we did come on down. Uh, this past week, there was another experience that we had. We went to lunch at the 1050 barbecue. Some of you were there. It was paid for by Restland. And I have to tell you, the message they had wasn't quite the message we had at our worship time this morning. But the, the, the implication was clear. It won't be long now. And, and so, uh, you know, they were ready to schedule an appointment right that week for you to come in and take a look, buy a lot, buy a box, and all of that. And that's sort of the bookends, I think, as it were, as I think about the lessons that we've learned over those 50 years on discipleship. It's been a great, great uh, time here in Dallas, and we're grateful to God for it. But it gives me a, a little longer look at the subject of discipleship, and so I want to talk to you about that uh, this morning. 
And I might as well tell you where I'm going to go, because I'm going to really issue a challenge, a call toward discipleship uh, for many of you who have made that commitment many years before. And I was thinking about that in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 1, verse 43, our Lord Jesus says, I think it's to Philip, follow me. And then when you get to the last chapter in the Gospel of John, you know Peter is worried about his position with reference to, to, to John. And, and the Lord says to him, don't worry about John, follow me. And when you look through the, the Gospels, you will find a number of either stated calls to discipleship or implied calls. So you've got that initial call in John chapter 1. You've got the call, remember, in Luke chapter 5, where they're fishing, and Jesus says, cast out your net for a catch. And, and they do, and, and they left their nets and followed him. So there were a number of occasions where the disciples had decisions to make. John chapter 6 that uh, Tom was teaching on several weeks ago. The disciples had to make their decision. Shall we go with the multitudes and forsake Jesus or shall we follow him? So the decision to follow Jesus as a disciple is not really just a one-time decision that you make once for all and never need to revisit it. And so I guess what I'm saying to you by way of warning is I'm going to challenge you to revisit your commitment to follow the Lord Jesus as I need to do as well. Well, all through the epistles, by the way, the word may not be used, but you find all the time, in fact, I'm tempted to say in every epistle, there is a challenge to press on, to persevere, to endure, something which is talking about the, the continuation of this discipleship commitment that we have, it's over and over again in the epistles as well as the gospels. So let me just start by, by giving some parameters as to how I understand discipleship. I think number one, discipleship is being with Jesus. Discipleship is being with Jesus. Now that's pretty clear when you look at the disciples who were called initially and they spent their time with him. But when you look at the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus sends them out to make disciples, but he says, I am with you. So he is with us in this discipleship process. It is being with him, and the culmination of all of this is to be with him forever, unhindered, in the presence of God. That's the end game, the goal. Second element, I think, is being like Jesus. Being with him, but being like him. We need to manifest those characteristics of our Lord Jesus. We are, Peter says, to become more and more like his image, being conformed to who he is being like Jesus, and being like him in what he does. His life was about bringing glory to the Father and bringing men to faith and salvation. That ought to be a significant part of our lives. It's a lifetime commitment. It's not just a commitment for a short term. When Jesus says, follow me, he means follow me from here on out. 
all the way. Follow me. And that's why he keeps pressing his disciples in that direction and why Paul and the other uh, apostles do the same. Follow me by obeying all of my commandments. Following Jesus means doing what Jesus said. And you know, you see that in, the, in again, the Great Commission. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. It's amazing how ingenious we are setting things aside. Well, that isn't for now. No, Jesus didn't mean that for now. Well, I don't know. He said, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. That's, and you know, we were talking about that ministry group last night. Commands are not really philosophical and ethereal. You can talk about all kinds of high-sounding stuff. But you know, when Jesus says, just do this, isn't it simple? And you either do it or you don't do it. But the command itself is pretty clear and simple. Discipleship is a corporate endeavor. I guess that's been one of my notes of my emphasis over the years, is it's not just solo. He calls disciples into the church, and in the context of the church, they are to be built up. And it seems to me, too, that discipleship and the decision to follow Christ is that which sets all kinds of priorities. Once you make that one decision, there's a whole sequence of things that fall into place, or should, in terms of our priorities. So the Lord Jesus says, remember in Luke chapter 9, to the guy who says, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, well, okay, but there is no Motel 6 with me. And, and then the other one says, well, let me go bury my father. And he says, well, let the dead bury their dead. And another one says, let me say goodbye. Jesus says, you got to make me your first priority. And then in Matthew chapter 10, he says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Choosing to follow Jesus sets some priorities that we must keep if we are to be his disciples. Now, I'd like to talk about discipleship for a moment in terms of categories. And that's because that's what I see in Ephesians. And I see three major categories. I'm sure there are more, but you couldn't endure if I did see more. So let's just go with three. The first category is the category of growth. Discipleship entails and necessitates growth. Now, when you go back to Ephesians chapter 2 and chapter 3, what you see is physical growth. And Peter picks this up in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, we're like living stones that are being built up together so that there's a sense as as the church is being formed, as it's being founded, as it's being fostered and grown, more and more people are added like living stones. So there is actually a size number factor in that that includes numerical physical growth. And that, of course, requires evangelism. But then there is the element of spiritual growth that is very clearly set forth, not only in Ephesians, but in all the epistles. And so when you come to Ephesians chapter 4, you see this element of God creating this body with a multiplicity of gifts. But the reality is because the body has all these different gifts and they're interdependent, nobody can live solo lives. 
everybody needs to be integrated into this conglomeration of gifts because we're dependent upon one another. And so Paul talks about the church growing up. And he says that we're growing up until we reach the full measure of the stature of Christ. And my friends, that isn't over yet. We need each other. I know these are days when people have their questions about the church. And frankly, some of them are probably legitimate. The reality is we cannot grow up as we need to, to maturity, apart from our involvement in the church, both what we gain and what we give to the church. But there's another aspect of that, too, in Ephesians chapter 4. And that is the whole mindset of what changes discipleship, following Jesus, really entails. And I think that many people, especially I think we in the West, we, we look at people who are pagans in Africa and, and we say to ourselves when they come to faith, they got a long ways to go. Well, they do. But the truth of it is, so do we. We don't need a tune-up, folks. We need a, you know, a transformation that takes place in our lives. And so when you come to Ephesians 4.17 and following, Paul is saying, you need to change from the way that you were and the way that you thought to a completely different mindset. Now, I'll just pick one, uh, and, and maybe we feel comfortable with this one, but let him who stole steal no more, but let him labor so that he may minister to others with his own hands. A little prayer phrase, but the essence of it. When I was in prison ministry, that would have been something that would have been earth-shaking. Because the mindset was, if I'm stronger than you are, your bank account is mine. Your social security check is mine. You being weak and me being strong means I live off you. But the scriptures turn that upside down. And they say, no, you are to use your strength to minister to weakness. That is your job. It is an inversion, an upside-down version of the values of the world. So that when you look at Ephesians chapter 4 and those remaining verses, it's all about edifying others. It's all about what we can do to build other people up rather than to have other people serve us. And I think when you move into chapter 5 of Ephesians, you start getting a little more specific and detailed about that. And I would call it all about love. And by the way, love is really the core, I think. Remember when you get down to what does it mean to follow God? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Your neighbor is yourself. It's about love. Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about spiritual gifts, and he says, well, it all really boils down to this. Chapter 13, love. And so he starts talking to us about love, but he's talking about the way in which love within the the church and within Christianity is so different from the love that we see in in the world today. And so in the first verses, he basically says Christians ought not to be a part of that which is called love in this world. It isn't, as I said in one sermon, the title of one sermon, it isn't a four-letter word. Love is far more than that. And so it's this move toward purity. And then you get that middle section 
of Ephesians chapter 5 that is talking about the way the church, filled with the Spirit, gathers together as we do and ministers to one another in love to build the church up. And then it moves to marriage. And I think, I've, I've done a lot of weddings and I've done a lot of sermons, I think, on Ephesians chapter 5, but I think it's really starting to come clearer in my mind that, lo- that marriage is the context in which love can be demonstrated and manifested clearly. So the, the marriage piece that you see at the end of, of Ephesians chapter 5 is totally unlike the love that you see alluded to in the early part of chapter 5, worldly love. It's different. And the love part is not all about me. It's about my role in committing for a lifetime of devotion to my mate. In, in devotion to my mate, to build her up, to encourage her in the direction of purity so that she meets Christ uh, better, as it were, better than it started. Now, I think that works in reverse as well. But think about that. How many marriages would be turned around? How many marriages would be saved if rather than coming into it with the mindset of what does my mate do for me? What if we went into marriage with the idea my commitment to my mate for a lifetime is to move them toward godliness? I would say if somebody comes then into the counseling room and says, do you know how bad my mate is? The biblical answer is you got a lot of work to do. Isn't that right? You've got work to do. That's what marriage is about, moving each other toward godliness. And this isn't just individual. And Paul makes that clear at the end of chapter 5. He's talking about the, the mystery of Christ and his church. So that the marriage is in miniature what's taking place in the broad scale of things, and that is Christ is preparing his bride to meet him in purity and holiness. And so that's to be modeled in the individual marriages that we, uh, that we have in our lives. The uh, next uh, model is that of warfare. <laughs> now, separate that from marriage, folks. There <laughs> needs to be a big chapter division there somehow between them. But when you get to, to Ephesians 6, 10, and following, there it's very clear that, among other things, the Christian life is a battle. It's war. I, and I've, I think I've become more aware of that as I've corresponded with people uh, in various parts of the world in the struggles they have. But think of what Satan is. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's an accuser. He's a destroyer. He's a murderer. And he's an adversary. Satan is working full-time to destroy lives. When someone commits suicide, it's a victory for him. That's where he's been leading. He is the accuser. He keeps guilt upon people, pile upon pile of it, and they collapse often under the weight of that. We're at war, folks, and Satan doesn't take sabbaticals 
He doesn't go on vacation and he hasn't retired. And in fact, the scripture seems pretty clear to me. As the days draw near for the return of our Lord Jesus, he's ramping up the battle. He's ramping it up. We ought to expect that. And I think in America, we've gotten kind of spoiled. We're the ones who have been popular and whatever. And all I can say to you, my friend, is it's over. It's over. That is not the day in which we live, and I don't think we'll ever see it again. The battle. Those are the uh, categories, I think, that the Scripture gives us, and there are many others. But each one of those points to the fact that it is a corporate, long-term, sacrificial commitment to which we've been called if we are disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me talk to you for a minute about chapters, chapters in our in our lives. I know that there are, I think there's a book, what's it called, Passages or something like that, but the, the, in essence, it's talking mainly in terms of time and, and the sequence of things that happens through your life. There are certain things uh, that have to do with our status that are pretty stable. For instance, in the Bible, slave and free. As a rule, one stayed in those categories, slaves and master. Generally, you stayed within those categories unless it was an exceptional situation. Husband, wife, male, female, oops, and Jew and Gentile. These were categories that were relatively fixed. And you had to live out your faith within the boundaries of those categories. And that's why Paul, at the end of his epistles, talks to slaves and children and wives and husbands and so on, because it's important to be a disciple in those categories. But there are also chapters, and often that has to do with our stage in life. When you look at Titus chapter 2, you see Paul in the early part of that talking about older men and their conduct. And then it talks about older women and their conduct. And remember the ministry that they can have to younger women? Or you see in Paul's writing to Timothy, especially 2 Timothy, where Paul is saying to Timothy, you're a young man. Here are the pitfalls of youth. Avoid those pitfalls. Discipline yourself for godliness and move forward. But don't let people look down upon your youth. So every point in our life has certain stages where there are just pitfalls as it were, golfing terms, sand traps somewhere along the way. And there aren't too many mulligans that are issued so far as, as I know with that. So we have to understand that. By the way, there are also pitfalls within our gifting. When you look at Romans chapter 12, and Paul talks about the way in which we exercise our, our gifts, he says that those who lead ought to lead with diligence. Not with some kind of casual, well, it's, you know, I'm not being paid for this job, so it doesn't really matter how well I do. Or he talks about when you are showing mercy, not doing so with a kind of grumpy, gripey attitude, that you really don't delight in what God is having you do. Every gift has its own pitfall. Oftentimes in the leadership area, that leadership can lead to an arrogance. It has Paul says in, in uh, Acts chapter 20 to the Ephesian elders, the danger with some of you is that you are going to begin to attract a personal following for yourselves rather than a following of Christ. 
So each gift has its own pitfall. But I want to give you an example of one that I think most of you can resonate with. And that is the changes that take place in this parent-child relationship. So Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. There you have the responsibility of a young child to parents, right? And the, the obligation is simply obey. Simple. And then you move to the parent-child relationship in Mark chapter 7. Remember where the Pharisees are, are after Jesus because of all their traditions? And he says to them, your traditions have become the excuse for disobedience to my commands. So he says, the law says to us, honor your father and your mother. Well, how do you do that when your father and your mother are not are now elderly? When your father's reached the point where he can't or shouldn't drive. When your mom is at a point where she really can't handle the bank account. How do you do that? Well, what happened with the Pharisees was they, they sidestepped their obligation to care for their parents by saying, well, I've devoted this money to God, Corban. This is devoted to God. I'm sorry, Mom and Pop. I can't help you with those hospital bills because this is God's money. Now, I could use it on my boat or other places, but I, I can't use it to help you. Our role as children changes. And, and I have to tell you, as the son who's had a father pass away and a mother who's now 95, I have to tell you, it's not easy. I do not, I would rather, I would rather be Bobby, you know, and be in that old role than to move over and now have to, in effect, take charge of things that I never anticipated. But that happens in life. There are different chapters in our life and God keeps moving us along and he doesn't let us stay in any chapter too long. Because the problem is we would get comfortable there. And we think, oh, this is a no-brainer. I got this one down. So, you know, with kids, first of all, the chapter is not having them. And then the chapter is having them. And then the chapter is, what do you do with them now that you got them? You know, and then they grow up. And, and you've got these different chapters. And every one of them means adjustment and change. And so discipleship looks differently depending on the chapter you have. The principles are the same, but the application changes. And what I'm saying to you is God moves us from one phase to another, one chapter to another, because he wants us to grow. So is it is it comfortable to move from chapter to chapter? No. But it's God's plan for us to do that. The last one I'm going to say is crises. Crises are those things that uh, you don't expect. You, you can't predict them just coming with age. But but think with me. You know, you've, you've all had crises of one sort or another. The death of a loved one. Sometimes early rather than late. You have to come to terms with that as a, as a disciple of the Lord Jesus. Um, disease. That word cancer. Uh, strikes terror into the heart because you know there's territory ahead that you may have never ventured into. But it's there, and as a disciple of Christ, you have to come to terms with it. There's financial difficulties, plus or minus. 
And you've got to readjust and live out your discipleship in terms of where God places you in those financial things. Employment issues, relation issues, somebody that's a longtime friend who seemingly betrays you. All of those crises come into our life, and I'm suggesting to you that they come by divine permission and design. Not that God made them happen in that sense, but he uses those things in our lives to move us toward maturity in our discipleship with him. That's why we're still here. We're still here so that we can suffer and we can grow and God can discipline us as sons to prepare us as his bride. So I was thinking about the scriptures that that, uh, give exhortations to all these different age groups. Paul says to Timothy, don't let anyone look down on your youthfulness in 1 Timothy 4.12. And then you have those general uh, instructions and exhortations like Paul in the end of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where he says we are to run in such a way that we win the race. And we win the race by disciplining ourselves. Hebrews chapter 12 says if we're going to win the race, We need to set aside those besetting things. They may be sins. They may be enjoyments or pleasures that we have that are not furthering us on our goal of following Christ. We need to set those aside. Here's the one that's becoming more and more pertinent to me, and I won't make an effort to apply it to anybody out there. The righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon planted in the house of the Lord, They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still yield fruit in old age. They shall be full of sap and very green to declare that the Lord is upright. Get that? Not withered up. Still vital, vibrant, fruitful for the purpose of declaring the goodness and the glory of God. That's supposed to continue on. So God doesn't talk to us about hammocks and, 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 and retirement in the sense that we think of it today. He talks to us in terms of endurance and perseverance and pressing on toward the goal. Okay, so where does all this lead? Well, it seems to me what you have to say is discipleship really is a lifetime commitment. And it's not bad for us from time to time to ask, how are we doing? So how do you know? How do you know how you're doing? I'm going to start with a little caveat and move from there. One of the things is don't ever feel good about where you're at. Now, I have to say, anybody who's a preacher or knows me knows that I never walk away from a sermon feeling good about it. Never. I never go home and say to Jeanette, wow, was that powerful? Wow. All I can think of is all the bad stuff, the things I would have done differently, things I should have said, didn't, things that I did say and I shouldn't, all that stuff. But part of the difficulty in growing in maturity in Christ is the more you grow and the more you know of Him, the further you are from the goal. Do you know what I'm saying? It's sort of one step forward and two backwards, but you're not really going backwards. It's all of a sudden you realize, this is worse than I thought. 
You know, I'm, I am really nasty stuff. And you see sins in your life and whatever that God shines His light on. And so you're not, you're never, if you feel really good about where you are spiritually, I'm worried about you. You, you can't really feel good in that sense, but you can look at the standards. And so you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, and you say to me, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Those are elder passages. It's talking about elders and deacons. It is. And I would say that the way I look at this, those are not just the initial qualifications for leaders. That once you pass that, you're like the Supreme Court and nobody can get rid of you. It's the initial standards, but it's also the standard, I think, by which Elders can look and elders corporately can look and say, given those standards, is this person moving toward maturity? Is he growing or is he stagnant? And frankly, I think that's why 1 Timothy is written, is to deal with elders who shouldn't be elders more than dealing with those who should be. Titus is another story. But those standards give us something to look at. And now coming, at, as let's say, from a non-leadership position, those are standards for maturity. And therefore, all of us ought to look and say to ourselves, how are we doing there? And if you don't like 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, okay. I'll give you 2 Peter chapter 1, where Peter says, here are all these things that you need to develop and grow at in your life. And something is wrong, he says, if you're not moving forward in these areas. Something's wrong. You've forgotten the salvation that God has brought to you. So there are standards that God has set forth, I think, that we need to look at and by which we need to measure ourselves. We need to be thinking in terms of our spiritual gifting. Paul says to Timothy that you need to rekindle that gift. Are you really conscious of the gift that God has given you, or gifts? And are you using that to the benefit of the body? Because if you're not, the body is suffering by your lack of discipleship. My being faithful to Christ benefits the body. My being unfaithful to Him is the detriment of the body. The body suffers because of my lack of diligence and discipline. Look at your spiritual gifts. Ask what God has given you. And look around the body to see what needs there are. And ask God how you can serve and minister to your brothers and sisters. That's the beauty, one of the beauties, of the way in which we meet on Sunday morning. We get to see a lot more of a lot more people, do we not? We get to recognize needs. I remember in days gone by, even so much... As one of, one of our beloved friends, he would notice the hole on the bottom of your, I haven't checked mine, <laughs> the hole on the bottom of your soul. And it would be very likely that if you had crossed your legs and he had seen that the next week, there'd be a pair of shoes for you. Look for those things in your brothers and sisters that desperately need attention and minister to one another. So as God does through our Lord Jesus, calling people to discipleship. The epistles continue to call us to growth and maturity and service to one another. And so my challenge is simply this. You may be a believer for 40 years. Are you growing? Are you serving? 
Are you becoming more Christ-like so that you're ready to meet the King? That's what it's all about. Father, thank you for your goodness and your love and the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the resurrection and all that that means. The power that raised the body of our Lord Jesus now dwells within us to give us power over the flesh. Would you work in our lives? And if there is anyone in my hearing who has not yet become a disciple by trusting in Jesus, by acknowledging their sin and realizing that there is no way to work their way into your favor, that simply by trusting in the Lord Jesus who has come and lived a perfect life, died in our place and been raised from the dead, would you grant them to trust in him now and follow him all their life. In Jesus' name, amen.